Hi, I'm relationship coach Megan Luscombe and you're listening to my podcast, Real Talk. Settle in as we have a quick chat about topics that surround our relationship with self and others. Let's get into it. In today's episode, I chat with Dr. Erin Bow, a clinical and perinatal psychologist, author, business mentor, course creator, educator, supervisor, podcaster, and mum, all about how we can better support ourselves and others when it comes to the nuanced and extremely layered area of birth trauma. Trigger warning, some of this conversation may be confrontational. However, the hope is that it really helps. Let's get into it. Like I said, I'm really excited to have this conversation with you today because I think it's very much needed. I love the content on your website and I love the topics that you talk about. I also love your ethos to how you work. I find very aligned with myself and I love that you have chickens, which um, I love chickens as well. My wife is absolutely petrified of them, so I can only love them oh. from a distance. Um, <laughs> so when I was looking through your website, I was like, this is great. This is a really, oh. like, I love being able to have these chats. So I think with that in mind, I would love for you to be able to explain to my listeners and the listeners of this podcast, what what does traumatic birth encapsulate? Mm. The really simple answer is if someone says, yeah, that was traumatic, I go, yeah, okay, it was traumatic. Right. It's the non-kind of clinical, let's flip through the book and look at the symptoms. None of that stuff really matters to me so much at the end of the day. It's someone going, that was traumatic. Although I have to say, usually people don't use that word. They will usually say, like, it was a bit WTF, it was bad birth. It was like we'll use other words. Trauma is sometimes not. Trauma is quite popular at the moment, so there is a little bit. Tell me about it. Yeah, yeah, there's more of an increased interest, like with all things in mental health, it goes through bad. So that's helped a little bit, but it's generally not something that people immediately go, oh, bam, that's what that was. Yeah, and do you think sometimes people don't actually realise what they've been through is significant until maybe a few months have gone by or maybe even a few weeks or maybe even conversations they have with other people about their experience? Yeah, because as humans, we we kind of want to like compare and quantify and sort of like fit things in somewhere. So a lot of the time people start Googling and then sort of go, oh, but does it count? Like that's the most common mm. sort of question I suppose I would get is mm. what counts? Like what counts as birth trauma? I say everything counts. Sometimes it's injuries, sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's interpersonal aggression, sometimes it's, those yeah. funny little microaggressions that happen in healthcare. It's feeling disrespected. It's feeling like, you know, you said no and somebody didn't listen. It encounters yeah. like so many things. That's why it's just easier to say if you feel it was traumatic, well, let's just say it. Yeah, it's I love traumatic. that. I, and I also really think that's great to give an individual permission for their experience yeah. because you're right. I do feel like people, as humans, we want to quantify everything and we want to have, we always want to have permission to feel or experience. The yeah. thing that you've gone through. So I like the fact that you were saying, well, if you've if you've felt it, then that's mm. it. That's that's it. That's the yeah. quantifiable there. That's that's what it is. Yeah, it's good enough for me, right? I love I love <laughs> that. I love that. And what what led you into doing the work that it is you do? Mm, you can blame my children for that. Mm, yeah, <laughs> <Yes. not> bad. <laughs> so I started, uh, I trained as a clinical psychologist. I did perinatal psych, like that was kind of a specialist interest area. Um, wasn't until I had my own children, I yeah, suppose. Okay. Birth trauma number one and then number two a second time, despite doing all the things, like yeah, all okay. the things. Yeah. 
in a bathing. I had a doula. I did a bunch of reading. I knew my rights. I've been in there and it just it still happens. So it's kind of one of those things of like, you know, if it could happen to me, despite all the preparation, despite all the like, well, yeah. maybe, you know, you had this tool and you had that tool and you had training, you've been through it before, like it can happen to anyone. So it was kind of like I could sit in a pity party um, or I could do something <laughs> with this energy and, boy, did I do something. I just created a bunch of stuff out of it. So I suppose that's the post-traumatic growth aspect to my yep. work. I just yeah, okay. found something that had to come out of me. If yep. it's been helpful to some other people, all the better. Absolutely. And I think that's a really, I think pregnancy, birth is sort of a baptism by fire. Oh, yeah. And the preparation is fantastic. I think it helps us feel feel in control. But obviously, exactly what you've said, it there are some things even even if you tick all the boxes to your control checklist and all the variables, yeah. there is something that's presented to you that is not something you've considered. Absolutely. Yeah. Do you often help individuals or even couples through the other side when they're at the unknown these are the things that we we didn't think we'd have to take into consideration and now we're here now we've been through and what we thought was going to be yeah very uh tick box Hmm. do you often see couples in that yeah and I think that's just part of like parenting and pregnancy anyway like if you think about I don't know for me I think about people who said oh we don't have a sleep and you won't sleep and you sort of go oh yeah 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 but, you know, you tell yourself to lie that all parents have to tell themselves in order to have children, which is like it will be different for me. Yeah. And yeah. it's not. <laughs> I love that. It's so true. So there's, and yeah, it's there's not. preparation and then there's like, but would you have listened anyway? So, I mean, to some extent, yes. Like I guess I've seen the other end of like um, I used to be a hypnobirthing practitioner, so I used mm-hmm. to see people that way do all the preparation still like there's no there's no real preventing some of this I suppose we're just you know we're just here to suffer right yeah right absolutely do you is there any area where you would say you see couples or even individuals come undone the most when it comes to navigating these areas I think the big one tends to be the interpersonal trauma so when it's been something like nobody else saw it but when nobody else was looking, you know, that obstetrician was, like, really racist to me yeah. or that midwife, like, misgendered my partner or yeah. I was made to feel like X, Y and Z because of what sort of body I've appeared yeah. at the hospital in. That kind of stuff tends to be the, like, you know, blinking, you miss it, did it really happen, nobody yeah. saw it, how do you put that in a document and say, yep, you know, you've done me some harm. So there's all sorts of things that come into it. It's different for everybody, but they're the really like, they're the ones that people like have the shower fantasies about. Like, why didn't I say this? Why didn't yeah. I say that? Why I should have done this for my partner. I should have done that for my partner and forgetting the whole cultural norm that is, well, as a partner, you pretty much stand back and don't do anything really. Right. That's really true, actually. I mean, I know that when my wife and I were going through our pregnancy journey, I had a lot of appointments and it was during COVID. So mm-hmm. a lot of the appointments I had to go to by myself because they weren't allowing your partner yeah. or support person to come through. And a, a lot of the time people would say, or is your husband waiting in the car? And I don't know how many times I had to say, mm-hmm. no, it's my my wife is waiting in the car. Like, no, my wife. Mm-hmm. And I found that infuriating. 
Yeah. And infuriating to continually have this. Oh, you, you and your husband must be so happy. Or when people were calling about blood tests, they'd be like, oh, um, are you going to be able to give your news to your husband tonight? And I'd be mm. like, are you not hearing what I'm saying? And it's so easy to make a simple switch to partner, support mm. partner, significant other, support person, whatever. It doesn't mm. need to be a, and I found that really that was so laborsome emotionally throughout my pregnancy to have to continually advocate for my own relationship, but also to have to re-remind people that, hey, not everybody is coming in here, A, with a husband, B, with a partner. Mm. And, you know, like, just think before you speak. (laughs) Or just ask. ask. Yeah, that's really true, actually. And do you think that these sort of moments that take place on an interpersonal level, do you feel that sometimes couples who experience them as individuals then find it hard to be able to navigate that space together based on their individual experience? Yeah, which is the thing with birth is you've got that whole bystander effect, vicarious trauma sometimes it's called, where it's like your, your body and your brain and your nervous system says, fight, help, mm-hmm. do something, but the system says, no, your only options, well, you can't run, right? you can't <laughs> fight, so you freeze or you people please, which is the form. And so when you have all that energy that's activation energy saying to do something and you don't do something, it, we know the trauma research tells us it stays there and it just yeah. kind of keeps floating around in the system, I suppose, until mm-hmm. you acknowledge it and actually look at it. So that's tricky because then there's the, oh, well, it didn't happen to me, so, you know, I don't want to burden you, I don't want to talk about it. So, yeah, there's um, there's just so much layers of, <laughs> layers yeah, of stuff. That's right. There, you're exactly right. And I, as you were talking about that, that's sort of how I picture it, in the layers. And I wonder, do you often have couples who acknowledge the layers or do they only sort of see their own experience and the effects it's had on them without Mm. being able to sort of see the effect it may have on their partner? Depends what else is going on. Yeah. (laughs) To be sure as to whether you've got that emotional energetic space to have that for somebody else because sometimes doesn't matter how long it's been. It's like, well, I can kind of only take care of my own needs, um, you know, and some of that's cultural conditioning too to be like, well, how do I as a person who has watched something Mm -hmm. horrific or maybe witnessed, heard about, you know, the vicarious aspects, it didn't directly happen to you. But as we know, if you're an empathic person and you're bonded to somebody, like sometimes Mm -hmm. watching something can be worse, like Mm -hmm. the example I've used, which is a harsh example, but it tends like people tend to remember it is like I would rather take a bullet than watch my child be shot. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. So those, you know, empathy neurons are very, very, very strong. But then we sort of, yeah, we do this thing and we're like, well, it didn't happen to me, so I don't care. So, yeah. yeah. Okay. So they, yeah, we have this self discount of because it's not my experience, I don't feel that I can actually feel the pain or I can feel what I'm feeling. And I know that I recently worked with a couple where they had experienced miscarriage. And the husband, this was a heterosexual couple, and the husband didn't feel like he was entitled to be as upset as his female partner who had physically experienced the miscarriage. And I wonder, is that something that you often see where one partner will sort of remove their experience and, or maybe just keep it to themselves because they don't feel they have permission to, yeah, yeah 
Yeah, it's 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 interesting because I think for the people who kind of can identify, all right, it, it was a direct experience that happened mm-hmm. to me. It's hard enough for them <laughs> to yeah. find that support. Like trauma um, therapy has a huge dropout rate, and it's something I'm finding myself wanting to talk about more and more and more because I think people don't fully get how many goes sometimes it takes yeah. to actually get yourself through the door. Well, I mean, it doesn't have to be a physical space now, right? Yeah. But to get there and stick at it, find the right person, if, yeah. especially if there's been interpersonal stuff, you've got to find someone that you actually feel okay with. Mm-hmm. <laughs> doesn't yeah. matter what their skills are, how many degrees they've got, what, it's got to be someone who's going to make you feel safe. You just yeah. reactivate all of that healthcare as unsafe kind of stuff. Yeah, that's really true. And I think you're so right. It's about finding the person who can support you through through that moment of your life. And you're right. I think people are very, because they're talking about such a personal area of their life, they might find, I'm going to try person A and it doesn't work. So it sets them back again. And then the whole process starts again. And then some of them will go, oh, you know what? It didn't work. It didn't work. And I say that, you know, in quotations. And then they go, okay, well, I'm not going to move forward from that. And then they may carry that experience into their next birthing, you know, and it just sort of the cycle starts perpetuating itself. Do you think that there is a strategy or a a technique that a couple can implement whilst they're going through being pregnant to keep them accountable for if something goes wrong that they can have for when it does? Mm. Yeah, I don't know if I've ever pronounced that before. That's an interesting one. I think hanging on to the idea of hope, like yep. hope, hope is a doing work, right? Mm-hmm. So we've got to have the, the hope but also think about, well, how are we going to do that? Yeah. I think some of that for couples is understanding how you like to be supported, really. Yes. That sort of fits very nicely back with the birth and what do you need and not assuming that, like, what you would like and what makes you feel safe and supported and loved and heard is the mm-hmm. same for your partner. And sometimes people think they've figured that out but they haven't really. Yeah. So birth, after actually having a baby just in general is a great time to figure that out. <laughs> yeah, no, you're exactly right. And I think that's one thing that my wife and I did really well in the lead up to our child arriving was asking and identifying with each other what we needed on the day and mm-hmm. in the month after. Now, my wife and I process things very, very differently. I'm a talker. She's a thinker. Mm-hmm. I like to talk out my feelings. She's very much, I want to think and I want to reflect and then I want to come back to it. Mm-hmm. So it took us both being able to say, if I'm talking, it's just all stuff coming out of my head. I'm just processing it all and I don't need you to do anything with it. I just need you to have space for me to just blur mm-hmm. and get That's all those like feelings. my house. <laughs> <laughs> like, you want advice? You want to listen? It's like, no, just, yeah, just absolutely. just not be talking to the door. Yep. <laughs> exactly. And for her, she was like, okay, I need to have the experience and I need to think and I need to come back to it. So it was about me not pressing for something because like, oh, you know, um, say we had a negative interaction with a doctor and me being like, oh, you know, that person really pissed me off or this, or this, this, this. And I couldn't say to her, what do you think about it? Tell me now. Like, what are you thinking? Tell me what you're feeling, you know? And those pregnancy hormones, they definitely put you in a different category of, you know, um, intense. Um, so, you know, it was about always re-reminding ourselves of what the other person needed in order to, like you said, feel heard, feel loved, feel supported. But also I think 
it allowed us to maintain a level of, and it's only a level of, it didn't happen all the time, but a sort of level of calm, Mm -hmm. which I think, I mean, we're not having any other children, but I think had we have had we thought of having more children, I think knowing we had that strategy in place for number one, I think it would would do us even better for mm-hmm. number two because we could make tweaks, you know, tweaks to it. And do you often do you often find that couples who go through, let's say, one to three births, that they are able to implement any lessons learned from one to two to two to three, or is it all sort of, no, it's a a one of a kind experience. We don't really get to have that moment of strategy or clarity. It's it's such a mixed bag. It's such a mixed bag because sometimes the things that you, I suppose, learn about yourself that you didn't want to learn about yourself Mm -hmm. come through and you're like, well, I wouldn't choose that. It's like sometimes when people ask me about, you know, like my own births and would I choose different? It's like, well, yeah, I choose not to have them. <laughs> I choose from my, I wanted the like lotus water birth, whatever, mm-hmm. kumbaya moment. That wasn't, that wasn't on the cards for me. So mm-hmm. yeah, of course I would have liked to be different, but I guess it's part of that going, okay, well, what did I learn about myself from that, that I maybe would not have had the chance to learn? Yeah, okay. Whether it is the strength finding, whether it is the like, Oh, actually, yeah, okay, I can do hard things. I mean, that's, for me, it's a tricky thing about every time I stub my toe, my husband likes to remind me, well, you did birth a five-kilo baby. Like, I think you're going to be okay. It's like, yeah, okay. <laughs> Still doesn't to- negate the <laughs> feeling right now. <laughs> no, but it's that reminder of like, okay, I can do hard things. Damn it, I can do hard things. Yeah, you can do hard things. <laughs> Absolutely. And do you think that? There are often times where women in particular don't feel that they can voice a how hard something was or that they didn't have the birth experience that they wanted to because they don't feel entitled to have had the expectation of what they wanted. Sort of almost like, well, you know, your baby's here and they're happy, healthy, whatever. So they get told by society that how they actually felt and the fact that their experience wasn't what they wanted. Well, too bad, too sad. Mm, well, yeah, that's kind of why the book was called More Than a Healthy Baby. I'm, like, I'm so sick of hearing this phrase, yeah. right? Like yeah. that this is the bargain basement that you could hope for is mm-hmm. a living child. You're like, that should just be standard. Yeah, right. right? Yeah, that's like the, the <laughs> basic level. Standard. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we sort of made it this like this is the best outcome you could possibly hope for in the maternity system. And if you have a living child, mm-hmm. whatever that means, yeah, you, have, like, you scored the jackpot. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it really does negate, it, it does negate those experiences. And I I know that with my birth, I had an elective cesarean and I was, I found it really interesting when I spoke to people or like my mother's group after, after birth, I felt like because I had had uh, a cesarean, people felt that they didn't want to share anything that there was a vaginal birth related because it there's in their mind was more traumatic or it was a more of a significant birth than what I had gone through. And, and at the end of the day, I mean, I'm very well able to go a birth is birth. Like if you have a via cesarean or vaginally, like fantastic. I don't think there's a superior, I don't think there's a superior birthing. Um, there is no elephant <laughs> Yeah, I don't, no you know. Yeah, sure. I sort of. Um, I sort of feel like for some women I notice that 
they don't feel that they're able to talk about their experience, whether it be negative or positive for them, Mm -hmm. because there's either somebody who had it worse, Mm -hmm. and that's always going to be the case, or somebody who had it better. Mm -hmm. So how do you find when it comes to people talking about their traumatic experience when it comes to somebody else who can say, oh, well, (laughs) I've Mm -hmm. got one that trumps that? Uh, it's it's I don't know how we get the end of that like wash yeah. the ends of it and say that's it I, I, to some extent I think it's part of that processing I think it is part of trying to figure out and make sense yeah. of what happened to you and so we like to as I said before we like to compare it's like we're herd animals absolutely. <laughs> we, yeah, we like absolutely. to sort of go where do I fit compared to everyone else but I mean it's more important to have compassion for yourself and go do you know well I did the best that I could it doesn't really matter what anybody else thinks yeah and I think yeah that's one thing that I I witness people get caught up in and I mean I have never ever been in more comparison loops in my life since you know I have had a child of Mm. and for me right now I always find myself falling in the sleep loop Mm. everybody else's kid is sleeping more (laughs) <laughs> and, but they're not they're not yeah. but I, my brain tells me that they are yeah. you know and I find myself in in that type of comparative and I know rationally I mean you know I studied psychology I, I know what my brain is doing but mm. I think I think being a parent sort of negates all of that prof- all of that education oh, oh, all yes. of that education <laughs> me just goes out the window and I wonder for you obviously you know you're a doctor you work in mm. these areas you uh, are a mum yourself how have you been able to navigate your trauma moments mm. whilst having the educational and practical experiences to go alongside them? Oh, it's been so humbling. Like, mm-hmm. you know, the compassion thing, I have to have compassion for like, you know, 27-year-old me. He used to say to people, well, like, you just put them back in bed and you give them no eye contact and you be really consistent. Mm-hmm. That is what you do. Mm-hmm. And then I had my own children who, I don't know, my first one I think gave up naps before she was even 12 months. And I spent probably in in amongst all the like trying to figure out like what has happened after this mm-hmm. traumatic birth, trying to figure out why my kid wouldn't sleep, right? Yeah. Just it becomes, you're right, this obsessive like competitive sport. Yeah. I must be doing something, something wrong. wrong. Yeah. I never figured it out. There was no like you do this, you do that, have you tried melatonin, like all the things. She just was actually probably quite happy enough being a wakeful child Yeah. at the end right. of the day. Some kids are not happy, wakeful children, and that's a different thing. Yeah. But if I look back, it's like, oh, okay, yeah. There wasn't really any, you can't <clears throat> force things on people uh-huh. to say, well, you just do this. I mean, didn't work for me. So Yeah, well, I don't think it works for anyone. No. You know, what I observe is we're all trying to, uh, have a child that fits the Google description of what they will be doing <laughs> yeah. within these these age brackets. And I think it doesn't allow for personality. It doesn't allow for temperament. It doesn't allow for anything that is individualistic. And as adults, we want to be treated as individuals. Yeah. But with children, we want to treat them all as if they're one. Mm. And I find it so, and this is what my brain always struggles with, because rationally having these conversations with, you know, you and with other people, I find I'm so able to be practical and I'm mm-hmm. kind and compassionate to myself. And I know realistically what I should be expecting and what I shouldn't be expecting. But when it's three o'clock in the morning <laughs> and yeah. I'm up for the eighth time since, yeah. you know, seven o'clock, all of that rational thought goes, hey, Megs, 
Mm-hmm. See you later. We're gonna we'll be back tomorrow at 7:30 a.m. when you're having your second coffee. But for now, you're doing everything wrong. Do you know that? Because most kids are sleeping through right now. In fact, every other child is sleeping through right now. And they are great nappers during the day as well. Mm-hmm. And it just starts this. And I think for me, the trauma and the the negative experiences for me exist more on the other side of birth than they did during the pregnancy and birth Mm. it's the lack of sleep it's the kid being sick all the time and you know nearly having Mm. hospital admissions and that to me is the things that I was completely underprepared Mm. for (laughs) because you know we just talk about the pregnancy and the birth yeah yeah it's it's never ending really like what no yeah yeah well that's really really true and for in the couples who are coming to you with birth trauma and and you know sort of support where do the couples get it wrong hmm. if you want to answer because i suppose i want to give you something simple that's like a, Never simple nice, though, a nice simple he's a nice simple sound bite you just do this but it feels it feels like the equivalent of me saying well you just put them back to sleep and pat them on the <laughs> yeah, bum and <laughs> yeah it's it yeah it's it's a more complex thing than mm. I think we can answer in a little short this is where you really get it wrong but I think even just asking that question and thinking about it like it's just we'll just kind of leave it in the air hanging because I guess I yeah. can't give a perfect answer that's great Mm. And I think that's really important for couples to know that yeah. this is, uh, it, it, you, it, and I go back to what you said before, it's layered. There are mm. so many layers in this. Well, when when do you think couples get it right? Mm. I think it's in those moments of actually just asking, like, what do you need? Yeah. And even if it's not an answer that you'd know, because that's kind of like we need to be careful about that because it's I'm not a big fan of this cultural narrative that says ring when you need me mm-hmm. send me a message when you need me yeah i'm more of a like give me five options and you know one of the options has to be like yep. bleep off and go away yeah right so that might be like recognition is better than recall we mm-hmm. can go with that so when okay. people have got options mm-hmm. <laughs> and the options can change at any given moment which is, you know, part of working in a diet of anything anyway. Like mm-hmm. I guess the example that's coming to mind now is kids. One week they like the tomato pasta. Cool, amazing. <laughs> We've got something everyone's going to eat next week, but I don't like that. Mm, never did. Why are you cooking? No, it's like, okay, yep, woman's right to change her mind. That's fine. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, be open to here's the options, but also I've changed my mind. I don't like any of them. But yeah. it's probably better than like the free... Yeah, the free recall. What do you need? I don't know what I need because if I knew that, then yeah, and then goes into the story. So yeah, you're absolutely. And I'm guilty right. of doing that too. I said, "What do you oh. need?" I don't know what I need. If I knew that, I wouldn't be here. So yeah, that's right. That's right. That and that's, yeah, yeah. And I feel like that's really giving people permission to pick from, like you just said, five options. I think is yeah. really empowering, not only for you but for them, because one thing I think women in particular we definitely are still working on our individual ability to ask for our needs to be met and I mean that's sort of a societal norm for women and I think when it comes to birth and having children and and positive or negative experience associated with birth 
women still exist in this. I need to do it alone. I can I can get over this and move through this myself. And I don't want to be a burden on other people. Mm-hmm. And you know, I'm I'm a woman. I should be able to navigate all of this. My body is I've born. My body's made for this experience and all of these other things that society tells us. So when something isn't going right, we don't feel that we're able to ask for it'd be great if you could make me dinner for the next few nights because I've got stitches and it's really yeah. hard for me to walk and things like that. So I like the idea of giving people options of things that you can do to help them yeah. and then they get to choose from one to five because that's really safe. It's really secure. It's a really nice demonstration of love and connectiveness. And I think we all need help when it comes to the other side of birth, but also during birth. Yeah. And that is a nice way for me to lead into do you think that couples also and individuals need to be able to set boundaries with people friends family when it comes to being on the other side of maybe a heavily traumatic experience Mm. when it comes to birth yeah it's like the first best example I think of figuring out how you're going to do your own little family unit yeah. Really? And thinking about, you know, expectations, as you say, like that's the kind of standard, you know, you have the baby, you take the photo, you put it up, mm-hmm. people say all sorts of lovely things. Mm-hmm. No one ever asks, how was your birth experience? Yeah. Are you going okay? It's really it's all about the baby, right? yeah. <laughs> which is great and all, but, you know, it's um if you'd had, you know, knee surgery or something, you know, yeah. like people then don't expect you, you know, to throw a party to have guests around to entertain people, you know, yeah. through a horrific car accident. People don't then 12 months later expect you to, again, throw a party, celebrate yeah. somebody else. So it's one of those kind of things where people often just don't even get five seconds to catch what's happened before the next expectation yeah. of what we're supposed to do hits. So, yeah, those boundaries, yeah, super, super, super <laughs> important, particularly if you're at a stage when you haven't even figured out what's happened yeah, and how you feel about yeah. it. Do you think that there's a time or a time frame where a individual's mind catches up to the experience mm-hmm. to be able to go, okay, it's it's going to take me maybe a few months or six months, or is there ever a indicative time frame, or is it more based on how you you sort of assess after the experience? It's kind of one of those depends on type yeah, things. Okay. Like so for say, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder, so like a proper full-blown, you're not going to get through this with like some inspirational quotes mm. and a book. Like you're going to need yeah. Yeah. definite guided support for this. Like that can't be diagnosed until after four weeks yeah, anyway. Absolutely. And with perinatal, we're talking like what, they talk about like this six weeks, like something magical after six weeks you no, sort no, of start no. feeling like yourself, who is yourself again. So, I mean, it's a very, very, very loose rule. There's that kind of, well, after about six weeks, give or take, I don't know, mm-hmm. like if you're still feeling like this just is not leaving my thoughts, I think yeah. that's the thing. Like it becomes this like perpetual state of, panic really but sometimes people have gone on lived with this for years and didn't really know oh this is a thing that I can put a name to I just thought you know (laughs) or you've got people in your life like well what did you expect you know again that cultural narrative around like well of course birth is like so horrific and of course this and you just you know nobody tells you because this is what to expect so yeah that's 
there's a kind of rough guideline, but it's a guideline, not a policy. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's one thing that based on this conversation, and I think I'm realising more even just talking to you, is that there is, it's so nuanced. This area is so varied. And But like all things with mental health, it is always so varied. There are so many things that are going to change it positively or negatively. Mm -hmm. And I think birth and pregnancy and having a family has been sold in such a package, like it's going to be this outcome and Mm -hmm. you're going to feel these things. And I think when we don't feel those things, we feel like we're out of the curve. We're off Mm -hmm. the bell curve. We're an anomaly to this. So better stay harsh on it Mm -hmm. because, you know, we don't want to be judged and we don't want to feel. and, And I think one thing people continuously ask me, oh, you know, are you feeling back to yourself? And I mean, what I'm 20 months post having a child and I will never be who I was before mm-hmm. I had my child. And, and I, I don't want to be that person anymore because that person couldn't survive this, <laughs> like, number one. That person whinging about I haven't had my nine hours of sleep yeah, and calling yeah. sick to work. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. We're not I, friends with yeah. anyone anymore. No, right no, now. no, no. And I, I feel like that's also one thing that I've noticed in the sort of conversation of mothers is back to themselves, bounced back. And it's almost like this narrative that you should be who you were now because the greatest thing in life has happened to you and you're privileged to be able to have that experience. So if you are thinking something negative, then shame on you because there are people who want your experience and can't yeah. have your experience. And I wonder, do you often see individuals or couples where they don't feel that they've gotten themselves back soon enough or they don't want to get themselves back? Mm. The self, like the self is an illusion. I suppose. Yeah, like that's, absolutely. Yeah, we're going a bit like Buddhists then, but I, I think it's true. Particularly yeah. when you think about like the identity. Like, so there's motherhood as an institution, and then there's mm-hmm. motherhood as an identity. And I think the closer I've gotten to trying to just, it's like, yeah, like you can't actually grasp yeah. it. It's, it's an illusion. I'm like, oh, that's actually maybe kind of helpful. <laughs> so yeah. Do not try and grab onto something that we think is like, I've got to hold on to this. It's mm-hmm. so precious. I've got to, as you say, like, I've got to get this back. My body has to look a certain way. Mm-hmm. I have to be like so loved up, like I had his commercial. Like, yeah. you know, it's just, it, yeah, it's a minefield of what we do to ourselves in terms of what we think we should be doing. Yeah, and it is. It's this constant pressure of who I should be and comparing myself to somebody else who is presenting themselves on social media to be infatuated with their children. And, you know, I think social media also contributes to this illusion of perfection and parenthood and Mm -hmm. all these sort of things. And it took me, what, I think it was 16 months that I was obsessed about sleep. Mm. For 16 months, day in, day out, it it consumed my thoughts. Mm. I was thinking about it when I went to bed not sleeping, but when I went to bed, yeah, yeah. I was thinking about it when I woke up and I thought that I was consistently failing because people around me, their children were sleeping through. Uh, yeah. And yeah. that's what everybody always said, you know, is, are they are they a good baby? But what <laughs> they were really meaning was, do they sleep? Because sleep mm. became a good or bad, like, mm. you know, oh, are they oh, they're not good babies if they're not sleeping. And And I think once I actually let go, and like I said, 16 months it took me to let go of it, 
once I was like, you know, it is, it's air. You can't grasp these things. You can't touch them. They're not tangible. And I've got a person here who has independent thought, independent feelings. And once I started treating them as such, oh my God, I felt like I could breathe again. And I, and I wished that somebody had told me in the lead up to pregnancy or during pregnancy, you don't have control over sleep. Stop mm-hmm. trying to fit a mold. Like, And that's why I say, like, for me, when people talk about sleep with children, it activates so many things in me Mm -hmm. from a place of, like, feeling quite anxious and, like, it makes me a little sweaty and stuff because of my own experience. Yeah, Yeah, I relate so much. I think for me, it's like, and the ages keep getting, you know, later when people, um, you know, ask, oh, well, you know, you know, maybe they started sleeping through at this age and then it's like, well, Oh, once they go to school. <laughs> I love that. I remember being where you were and my neighbour, like, bless her, she's in her 80s. She's like, oh, we'll probably sort it out by the time they get to school. And I was probably exactly where you are. And then go, oh, no. Yeah. But somehow, you know, right. it works out. Yeah, you know, and my, my grandma raised me. She had 12 children. And I said, I said to her, well, you know, when did your kids sleep? And you know what she said? I don't remember because I don't yeah. care. <laughs> She's like, it happened, like, you know, and it's not yeah. one thing. And she said, and, you know, you don't, nobody asks them, so when did you start sleeping through? Mm. <laughs> like, you know, she's like, you know, I get you're feeling the feelings now because you're going through it, but, mm. you know, you'll find that as time goes on, no one's, it's not a gold star for sleeping. No. And, no. but, you know, when you're in that, like you just said, when you're in it, you're like, mm. oh, my goodness. So. To wrap this conversation up, which I feel like I could have for another four hours because it's so nice to actually speak to somebody about like the realities of birth, what do you think anybody who is planning on birth, going through birth, on the other side of a positive or even a negative birth, what are some things that you think that they should know about their experience or how they can navigate their own scenario better Mm. i think like there's like all things it's multifaceted so Mm. understanding the system if you're birthing in australia in the birth care system that's helpful because you kind of got to know what you're going into right so that's always helpful knowing your rights knowing how the system works yeah understanding that it's a business understanding all of that understanding what you can do to manage your own distress that suits Mm -hmm. you rather than what suits your partner, what suits someone else, and thinking about it from like a full five senses kind of thing. Yep. It might be that you really hate being touched. You might find it differently in birth. So, again, it's like having the menu of like spin the wheel. You might say, yeah, I'm going to really like put my headphones on and listen to music and then on the day I absolutely can't stand it. So I think it's not getting stuck in the idea of what you think it's supposed to be but having options and hopefully having someone help you navigate some of those options. Do you want to try these? Have you thought about that? For your own distress and figuring that out first because they're often going to be the first things that you go to when you've got a child who is distressed and you're going to try and help them figure out how to manage their own distress. You can't do that unless you can manage your own first. (laughs) So Yes, absolutely. I'm trying to give like lifelong skills for like if you can kind of get a reasonable grasp on that, like here are my, again, five go-to things I know will generally help and then you use recognition rather than recall, trying to like grasp for something because we've all been there with a small angry person trying to grasp something for what's going to change the distress. And I think, you know, again, this compassion piece around 
if it's bringing out, this is, we were talking about this before, before we were recording, I think, about children are going to bring out the stuff about yourself that you don't want to look at. Yeah. The bigger, the better, the uglier. If you can actually look at it yeah. <laughs> and have compassion for yourself on those parts, remembering that they're just parts, it's not all of you, mm-hmm. that helps because then you're also helping, I suppose, your kids in the future to be okay with the ugly parts of themselves too. And we all have very, very ugly parts. Don't forget to like and subscribe. And if you're on socials, follow me at Megan Luscombe underscore. If you're interested in working together, you want a session? Yes, I work with clients worldwide. Or perhaps are interested in coming to one of my upcoming workshops? Visit my website, www.meganluscombe.com.au.